0: Albert Einstein was a smart guy, so smart that I personally can't even explain the world-changing mathematical and scientific theories for which he gets the credit. Perhaps because he was such a smart guy, he also ends up getting credit for things that he never said or did, Uh, especially pithy quotes. Here's one. Everyone is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it's stupid. That's a wonderful quote that Einstein never said. How about this one? Education is that which remains if one has forgotten everything he learned in school. I love that. But Einstein never said that. Or this one. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. That's one of my favorites. And Einstein often gets the credit for saying that, for being the first one to say that, but he never said it. No, it was an unnamed woman speaking from experience at a meeting for those who care for family members addicted to alcohol. Kind of brings it home a quote like that when you take it out of the science lab and into somebody's living room who's dealing with real life insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results now that's become something of a cliche as often it gets as it gets repeated by otherwise original and respectable authors across a variety of disciplines and yet it is tragically true we still find ourselves surprised and offended by the notion that what we've always done and plan to continue to do may very well be one of our biggest problems. We expect to experience improvement without any real change. We imagine that our marriage will get better, Our finances will get better. Our personal character will improve. Our relationship with God will improve if we just recommit ourselves to the beliefs and the values and the habits that have gotten us to the point at which we find ourselves today. That's insane. Put another way, it's foolish. In today's passage, the sage sort of lifts the curtain on an all-too-common scene. We've seen this play. We're at the busy crossroads of a bustling city. People are shuffling quickly along, headed anywhere and everywhere, and and too focused on their own priorities, and they're, they're, they're busy completing their own projects to pay any attention to the appeals of a beautiful and strong woman. A woman who, on the one hand, voices a rebuke and warns of coming calamity and, on the other hand, offers happiness and joy if they would just stop and turn back and listen. But the people in the picture that the sage is painting for us, they're too busy to pay attention. They're too invested in their own ways. They imagine that the next sale, the next decision, The next conversation will bring them what they long for, and in their insanity, in their folly, they continue to do what they've always been doing, not realizing that time is running out and the stakes are life and death. The truth of the matter is that all of us tend to be like the simple men milling about the sages' city. Each of you arrived here today with a set of values. A set of priorities and plans and projects, a series of goals or aims and a basic unstated idea of what in your mind you imagine the good life to constitute. Now the details may be different from person to person, but what's the same for all of us is that we don't want to entertain the notion that we might be on the wrong path. That we might have made a wrong decision and that we might need to stop, turn around, listen, and go another way. We don't want to listen and we certainly don't want to listen to rebuke. The central message of this passage is found in verse 23. We already read it. Turn at my reproof. Turn reproof at my reproof. Turn, stop going the direction you're going, stop taking the steps that you're taking, stop making the decisions that you're making. If you think you can keep doing the same thing and expect to avoid judgment that your choices bring, then you are a fool. In other words, wisdom's rebuke warrants repentance. Wisdom's rebuke warrants repentance. And this lady, Wisdom, she's like a master. She's, she must have taken a, a, a public speaking class because what she does in this passage is, you, you know this, tell us what you're going to say, say it, and then tell us what you just said. That's what Wisdom does for us today. She prepares for her uh, speech. She gives her speech, and then she reflects on her speech, her rebuke. And so there are three parts of this text, and we're going to follow each of these one by one. So notice, first of all, from verses 20 and 21, Lady Wisdom prepares her rebuke. Lady Wisdom prepares her rebuke. The sage, uh, the author of the book of Proverbs, in this case probably Solomon, introduces us to a second mentor in these two verses. We've already been introduced to the father and the mother. My son, you've got to heed my instruction. Uh, The parents actually offer up 10 lectures in the opening chapters of the book, perhaps echoing the 10 times that in Genesis 1 God speaks or the 10 words that he gives on top of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. These are covenant instructions. And in the midst of these 10 sort of lectures, the... uh, the the young man is is also addressed by a woman named Wisdom. Now immediately, my mind—I don't know if I'm crazy or, or not—but this is my, where my mind went when I read this: was why is this person a woman? <laughs> is there something? Well, the the ladies in the room are saying, "Well, I know why." <laughs> Hang on. Is there something about women that's wiser than men? I doubt it. <laughs> Okay, on a basic level, Hebrew grammar, uh, like Spanish and other languages, employs grammatical gender for, for words that actually don't have a, uh, a gender. And, and so as it happens in Hebrew, nouns denoting personal character traits are almost always feminine in gender. So it may just be uh, that that's what the noun is. It's a feminine noun, and so uh, wisdom is presented in the feminine. But I think on a deeper level, it would seem that the sage leans in to this a little bit. Both wisdom and folly, by the way, ladies, folly too, okay? <laughs> Both wisdom and folly are presented, are, are personified as beautiful women, and I think the reason for that is because this book is addressed primarily to a young man, my son. It seems to me that Solomon is underscoring that there is an attractiveness, there's a beauty. There's a magnetism, both in the case of wisdom and in the case of folly. There's something about those two paths that attract a young man, and and really all of us, to one or the other. They're attractive. And and I think you'll see, as we begin to study through this book, uh, you'll see the the beauty and the appeal of wisdom. But in spite of wisdom's beauty, which really ends up getting emphasized much more in chapter 8 she nevertheless has to offer up a rebuke in this passage. And as she prepares this rebuke, notice that it exhibits three qualities. First of all, it is an intelligible rebuke. It is an intelligible rebuke. Did you catch how she presents the message? Does she whisper? Does she hide? Does she make herself difficult to find? No. She cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance to the city gates, she speaks. She says in verse 23, I want to pour out my spirit to you. I want to make my words known to you. In other words, she's offering some words that maybe a person would not want to hear. This is a rebuke, but it is not confusing or quiet. It is intelligible. It's audible. It's easy to hear. I want to communicate all of my thoughts, she says. I want to make sure you don't miss it. And Solomon paints the same picture in Proverbs chapter 9. Uh, Clearly, he wants to emphasize that the message of God's wisdom, of the skills for living as a covenant son or daughter, that message is available to anybody with ears to hear. It's a message that's intelligible. Moses says something similar regarding the law of God. He says, for this commandment that I command you today... It's not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. In other words, the reason that you and I choose folly instead of wisdom disobedience and rebellion instead of obedience it's not because of, of a deficiency in the message it's not because god wasn't clear in the things that he wanted to communicate it's because in keeping with our twisted sinful nature we choose to reject an intelligible message but i want you to know that god's desire for you this morning is to hear his word and that that desire for him to hear For you to hear his word is in keeping with his character. This lady wisdom is really just a figurative uh, personification of one of the attributes of God. God is all wise. This is God's wisdom. And what what we know about God, based on passages like this one, is that the God who is there, the God who exists and who made the world, is a God who wants to be known. Say, I'm confused. I don't know what to do. What decision should I make? Okay, ask God, and then pay attention to his word. He he doesn't want you to stay confused. His message is intelligible. It's, It's available to all with ears to hear. Wisdom's rebuke is an intelligible rebuke. Notice the second characteristic of Lady Wisdom's rebuke from verses 20 and 21. It is also an immediate rebuke. It is an immediate rebuke. I mean, you can just hear the the tone of voice that she's using when she calls out to the people milling about the city square. Listen to me, I'm raising my voice. Later on, she's going to say, how long will you love simplicity? In other words, there's some urgency here. She's going to warn against a moment just around the corner when it will be too late. The rebuke that she is offering is of immediate concern one of the most powerful forces we experience as individuals is the impulse to say one day i'll pay attention to what god is saying in his word one day i'll listen to the convicting voice of the holy spirit one day I'll get serious. One day I'll turn away from sin. One day I'll stop the adulterous relationship. One day I'll come clean with my spouse. One day I'll stop the financial dishonesty. Whether the issue is big or small or something silly or something very serious, we're constantly telling ourselves that we have plenty of time to change, plenty of time to turn things around, plenty of time to listen to the voice of wisdom, that there are more urgent matters at hand but that's just not true. And, and deep down inside, you know that that's not true. You know that if God is calling you to repent, to abandon the, the simple approach that you've been taking to life, uncommitted to righteousness, uncommitted to the gospel of the Lord Jesus that today is the day to repent. Today's the day to turn around and listen to the voice of the Lord Jesus. Tomorrow is not the time to listen to the word of God. Tomorrow is not the time to repent. Turn back today. Wisdom's rebuke is an intelligible message. It's also an immediate message. But thirdly, you can see already from these initial verses that her rebuke is also an inconvenient rebuke. And this is something we perhaps don't appreciate as much as we should. It's an inconvenient rebuke. Where does this take place? It takes place in the market at the entrance of the city gates. Why do you go to the market? I don't go to the market. I don't, I mean, I don't really go to the market anyway. But figuratively speaking, why do we go out into these uh, types of settings? I don't go there to hear a lecture. I go there to buy something or to sell something or to have a conversation or to kind of make a business deal, to, to, to accomplish something, to finish a project, to form a relationship, to build an alliance. I go because I already have an agenda. I don't go for somebody else to tell me what they want to tell me. And so what when wisdom confronts us, when wisdom rebukes us, it's going to be an inconvenient rebuke. It's going to interrupt our priorities i tend to get cranky and annoyed if somebody interrupts what i'm trying to do in order to correct me as i look back over the course of my life i can point directly to specific instances in which i left valuable advice and mentorship on the table because the correction i was receiving just wasn't convenient and it didn't fit into my previously selected priorities that's hard to think about but it's true I was too proud to listen. And later I had to learn that lesson through the school of hard knocks. Now that's better than not learning it at all. But how many wasted years, how many wasted opportunities have come and gone in my life because the rebukes of the wise were inconvenient? How many wise men and women have walked away from me, head shaking in disappointment, knowing that eventually, hopefully before it was too late, I would learn that Lesson. I know I've been forgiven. I know God uses my weakness and even my sins to highlight his glorious grace. But I wish that I had listened to the voice of wisdom even when it was inconvenient. We more or less take it for granted that experience is a great teacher. But if we would learn by listening before life smacks us in the head, wouldn't that be the mark of wisdom? You see, God's way, this is, you can just mark this down. God's way is, is not to ease you into obedience or to trick you into obedience. You know, we parents are like that. Oh, you're doing that that thing that somebody's gonna get killed. That's nice, but why don't we do this? God doesn't do that, okay? No, he confronts you. He says you're doing it wrong. He interrupts your priorities because, why? Without humility, without brokenness, without a willingness to admit i'm on the wrong path and there is no real repentance and no healing from folly we need to recognize we need to learn that the voice of wisdom is going to often come in the form of a rebuke and that rebuke is going to be inconvenient it's going to be an interruption so she prepares to rebuke it's an intelligible rebuke it's an immediate rebuke and it's an inconvenient rebuke Having prepared this rebuke, we move on to the second movement of our passage, verses 23 and following, in which Lady Wisdom delivers her rebuke. She delivers her rebuke. Now notice that in verse 23, she speaks directly to the fool, to the simple, to the scoffer. These three types of individuals are on the same path, they're just at different points along the path. The simple just really really simply Uh, A simple man is an uncommitted man. He's somebody that stands at the beginning of the path. He looks down the path of folly and he says, that looks pretty good to me. I'm not sure if I'm going to go down that path or if I'm going to go down this other path. The simple man is uncommitted and he's open to the path of foolishness the fool is someone who's committed himself to the path of folly he shut his ears completely to wisdom and the scoffer or the mocker is worst of all not content merely to destroy himself he mocks and conjoles and he intimidates others into be uh, into into joining him on that path and so lady wisdom actually speaks to all three of these and she begins with lamentation she cares about the choices being made by these Three idiots. She says, how long are you going to keep doing this? What that means is that God cares about the choices that these guys are making. Wisdom is an attribute of God. According to Proverbs 8, it is the very skill with which God created the world. God expresses. So it's not just wisdom. This is God expressing concern, care, compassion for mockers, fools, the uncommitted, you can hear the urgency in her voice. How long? And then the core, the kernel of what she's asking us to do is found in verse 23, if you turn at my reproof. I'm reproving you, I'm rebuking you, I'm calling you out, I'm shouting out all the things that you're doing that you're not supposed to do. I'm, I'm offering up some correction to, do, to, to you, so what should you do? Turn, repent, go back. Go back. You're wandering away from me. You're wandering away from God. Turn around. Listen to what God communicates to us over and over again in the Bible. It's not merely that we have a hole in our hearts that, that only God can fill. You've heard people say that. I've said it myself, and that's true. But it's, that's, not all, that's not all God wants to communicate to us. It's not just that if you start going to church regularly you'll have a better life. Now maybe that's true, but that's not all the Bible has to say. Or that God can help you get control over your life dominating problems, or that Christians generally report having better marriages and relationships. All those things might be true to varying degrees, but so often they aren't the emphasis in the Bible and they're not the emphasis in this passage. The emphasis on this in this passage is You're going the wrong way. You're headed to destruction. You're almost there. How long are you going to keep going? Turn. Turn around. You're making the wrong decisions and you need to turn. That's really beyond the realm of acceptable to us so often, isn't it? Wait a second. You're telling me I'm doing the wrong thing? No, I'm going after the, my heart's desire. I'm following my heart. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that what we've been told since we were little kids? We live in a world in which righteousness means to be true to oneself and the only sin is to deny ourselves or imply that somebody else needs to deny themselves. If you believe what most modern people believe about the nature of the good life, you're in grave danger. Because according to passages like this one, if you cannot recognize that human beings are born headed in the wrong direction, If you can't recognize that a change of heart is needed, if you think repentance is optional or out of vogue or unnecessary, then you're in trouble. Wisdom's rebuke warrants repentance because look at what's soon coming for those who refuse to heed the very clear, very urgent rebuke that wisdom offers. In verse 24, she gives a verdict and then she follows it up with a sentence. Here's the verdict. I called, and you refused to listen. I stretched out my hand, and no one heeded. I offered counsel, and you ignored it. I gave you my reproof, and you would have none of it. Are you beginning to see how a wise person and a person who listens, a teachable person, are the same person? A person who's wise is not somebody who knows how to do everything. This is a mistake that we often make. Oh, that person's wise. What we mean is they know how to do everything. And so very few people are wise. That's not what God calls us to be. Only God is wise in that sense, right? No, he calls us to be people who listen. He doesn't want us to arrive at a place where we have nothing left to learn. No, a wise person is someone who has his or or her ears open so that as they're going along their way and they learn that, hey, you're going the wrong direction or you need to change uh, paths, you need to change courses, they hear that and they agree. But these fools don't listen, so... Having issued the verdict on their life, wisdom moves on to the announcement of their sentence in verse 26. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. What lies in the future for those who do not listen? Judgment. Calamity. Terror. And wisdom will laugh. Of course, this is figurative language. Remember, wisdom is not a person. Wisdom is a divine attribute that the sage has personified. Uh, It's not literally wisdom that will laugh at the calamity of the fool. Who's really laughing? God laughs. Read Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves... The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He that sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God will laugh at the calamity of the wicked. Does that surprise you? Laughing in this passage is the response of vindication and victory. We use the phrase, she got the last laugh or he got the last laugh. That's sort of what wisdom is saying will happen. You're laughing now, fools. You're not listening to me now. You refuse to repent now, but I will have the last laugh. This is sort of an embarrassing passage for many evangelical Christians in the United States today. There are hundreds like it because out of a desire to attract our neighbors to the beauty and the goodness and the mercy and the kindness of Christ and of the Christian faith, We have inadvertently, perhaps, communicated that God is somehow trying his best to get everyone to like him, offering incentive packages to those who say a simple prayer and acknowledge him as the heavenly Santa Claus who gives cool stuff to all his friends and people who say that they like him. And he tries and he tries and he tries. And with some people, he succeeds. And with some people, he fails, and when God fails, he's just so sad. And inadvertently, this is the kind of thing that we communicate, but there are two problems with that caricature. Number one, God doesn't fail. This idea that so many people reject him because he just hasn't found a better way to win is both blasphemous and ridiculous. Did God fail when he cast the armies of Pharaoh into the bottom of the sea? Did he fail when the great kings of old drove back the Philistines? Did God fail when he decimated the armies of Assyria by the tens of thousands outside the walls of Jerusalem? Will God fail when he invites the birds of the air to feast on the flesh of his enemies, according to Revelation? No. All those were instances of God's victory. God doesn't fail. Second problem with the caricature is that we've communicated the idea that God is somehow reluctant to bring justice. No, wisdom will laugh, a laugh of victory and vindication. You say, I don't like that. I don't know if I can believe in a God who is going to judge people like that. We need to understand... God does not exist as a figment of our imaginations. He's not a video game character that you kind of go through in the beginning of the game and you pick this characteristic and that characteristic and you strap them onto the character and then you can go and play the video game. That's not the way that life is. He isn't a therapeutic tool designed to help you reach your wellness goals. He's I am. He's the creator. The self-existent one, the one who is and always has been. You know what it's like when we call, you know what it's called when we we form a, a God in our imaginations like Plato? You know what that's called? It's called an idol. And according to the second commandment, God does not appreciate when we try to form a God out of the projections of our own imagination. God is not our imaginary friend. He's not imaginary at all. One of the things that we need to know about him is that he hates idols because they rob him of his glory. If you do not like a God that judges the wicked, then you do not like God. And you need to repent. Wisdom's rebuke warrants repentance. Lady Wisdom prepares her rebuke. She delivers her rebuke. And then she's not done because in verse 28 and following, she's going to reflect on her rebuke. Wisdom reflects on her rebuke. Notice something that happens in verse 28. There's a shift. It's a a subtle shift, but it's there. Look at who she addresses beginning in verse 28. In verses 23 through 27, it's you. She's talking to the simple man. She's talking to the fool. She's talking to the mocker. It's you. And then what happens in verse 28? They. She switches from the second person to the third person, and it speaks volumes when she does that. Wisdom speaks, shouts, stretches out her arms. She raises her voice, pleads, begs the simple to listen, to turn, to repent of their folly, their rebellion against God, and they refuse, they ignore, they procrastinate. They say, one day maybe I'll hear you out, and one day never comes. And before long, wisdom stops speaking to them altogether. You becomes they. Having started out as an object of care and concern, the fool becomes a cautionary tale, a byword, a warning to others not to follow their, their path. But now I want to learn. I need you now, wisdom. I'm in trouble. She says, then they will call to me and I will not answer. The time will come when those who refuse the word of God will wish that they had made a different choice, but it will be too late. Helpless regret in the midst of calamity will be their portion. One of the most painful realities of judgment, according to the scripture, is the experience of regret. There is going to come a time in the life of the rebel in which he says, what about now? Can I repent now? And the answer will be no. They'll call, and there will be no answer. You remember the rich man in Jesus' story? There was regret in that man, wasn't there? Jesus talked about the rich man and a poor man named Lazarus, and the rich man didn't believe in Christ. He went to hell, and there uh, uh, and there was a great gulf in place between hell and 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 the. The the family of God, the bosom of Abraham, and Lazarus is over here enjoying the family of God, and the rich man is suffering torment forever, and he's over here, and he calls out. He says, can you send Lazarus to tell my brothers so that they make a different choice? He still didn't get it. He still thought Lazarus was his slave, but there was regret. Why is God so vindictive but friends listen he's been calling and calling and calling he's made his wisdom and his words so clear so intelligible to us he's framed his commands and his invitation to believe in these attractive inviting terms He's given us every opportunity to stop, to push pause on our pre-selected priorities, to turn around and to listen to the voice of the word of God. And at the end of the day, it's not going to be God's pettiness that destroys the wicked. It's going to be their own devices. They shall eat the fruit of their own way and have their fill of their own devices. In his well known book, The Great Divorce, British author C.S. Lewis chillingly reflects There are only two kinds of people in the end those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, In the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. You see, at the end of the day, it's not the spectacular sins, the murder, the extortion, robbery, adultery that destroy the soul it's his stubbornness it's his unwillingness to listen the simple aren't killed because they are simple because they make dumb choices because they make mistakes that's not what gets the simple man in the end what kills the simple man the simple verse 32 are killed by their turning away In other words, they hear the voice of wisdom and they say, no, I'm good. I already know what to do. That's what gets them. The fool isn't destroyed because he messed up. It's not because he misstepped. No, why is the fool destroyed? The complacency of fools destroys them. It's because they hear the voice of God. They hear the invitation to repent and believe and they say, well, Someday. but notice that wisdom doesn't end there. It's like she's been speaking to the fools in the city for the whole passage, and now at the last verse, she turns to you and me, and she says, you see what happened to these fools? Don't go that way. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure, free from distress and alarm. What does wisdom's voice sound like in in 2024? Is there somebody who speaks with God's authority, who displays God's beauty, who invites us to stop what we're doing and turn around and listen and repent? Is there somebody who warns of certain judgment to the complacent and offers blessing and honor to those who listen? Is there somebody today who can say to us with authority, whoever listens to me will dwell secure? Let me tell you what the voice of wisdom sounds like today. It sounds something like this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. What does wisdom sound like today? It sounds something like this. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It sounds something like this. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Who is it who calls us to repent? It's not just a fictional character from the Old Testament book of Proverbs. No, it is a person who is present here today. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent, he says. At its core, following Jesus must mean repentance. It must mean I'm going the wrong way, I hear the voice of Jesus, I stop and I turn around and I leave that way behind so I can follow him. It must mean this because he is the one who died to take our place and rose again and he's living today and he's sending his Holy Spirit to interrupt our personal priorities and call us to follow him, and that's true no matter if you're young or old, if you grew up religious or if you grew up not thinking about religion. Personally, I grew up in a home that was very religious. I heard the Bible uh, taught every day in family worship. Uh, We went to church every week. I even was really a good Christian because I had a clip-on tie (laughs) that I wore faithfully and tried to keep it clean, you know, it didn't get chocolate milk on it. You would have thought that little boy is a Christian who belongs to a Christian family, but one night as a youngster, as I was playing, doing the things that were important to me, Jesus interrupted what I was doing with an intelligible message, an urgent message, an immediate message. Because I began to overhear my dad speak about Sin and judgment and salvation to my sister and the Holy Spirit in a way that a child could understand. Convicted my heart. And I said, when I had the chance, Dad, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. And my dad explained to me that Jesus died in place of sinners. So that all who turn away, all who repent... All who believe in him could know for sure that they're forgiven and that they have eternal life. And that night I stopped and I turned and I listened and I believed. And I was born again. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure, wisdom says. Whoever listens to the voice of Jesus will be saved. That was the first of many times when I would personally have to stop and, and listen to the voice of the Lord Jesus. But now, when I turn back, when I'm on a path and I have to turn around, I'm not repenting as someone who is the enemy of God who has to become his friend. I'm already in God's family. I'm turning around as a member of his family, and I'm, I'm turning to the voice of my Father now. What about you? Can you say that? you have a story like that? Has the Holy Spirit inconvenienced you? Has he called out to you and said, repent and believe? If so, don't wait. Today's the day. Today's the day to believe. Today is the day to stop, listen, and turn to the voice of wisdom. Wisdom's rebuke warrants repentance. Would you pray with me now? Father, I want to thank you for the clear invitation from your word To turn away from my pride, to turn away from my own false wisdom, and, t- and turn toward what you say in your word, Lord. And we know that that begins with turning toward the good news that Jesus died for sinners and rose again and is living today. Lord, I pray that if there are any in this room today who have not repented of sin, that in your mercy you would call them to repent and believe, and that today would be the day of salvation for them. And Lord, for the rest of us, as your children, we still need to repent. I pray that you would give us the power, the courage to say no to the folly we've been pursuing, and yes to our Heavenly Father, knowing that you love us, and you love us so much that you sent, your, you sent us your Holy Spirit as a down payment of our inheritance that we look forward to. I pray that you would help us and empower us as we respond to your word in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.